The Encyclopedia of Life, EOL.org, is a web-based project dedicated to giving every species on Earth its own web page. Each page is vetted by experts and available to everyone. The project passed the 1 million page milestone this year, but that's nowhere close to matching the diversity of life on Earth. Nathan Wilson is master curator of the Encyclopedia of Life, a lofty title. He's also the founder of MushroomObserver.org, a communal web-based field notebook for professional and amateur mushroom collectors, and he's an advocate for the inclusion of volunteers in science. Nathan, it's nice to have you here. It's great to be here, Heather. We'd love to have you join our conversation. You can give us a call at 866-999-4626, or you can email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at livinglabradio.org. Now, Nathan, I'm going to have to start by playing devil's advocate. Why does every species on Earth need its own webpage? Why, why do we need this encyclopedia of life? Well, the species don't really care. So they don't care whether they have a web page or not. But it's really about um, getting access to people um, to the knowledge of life on Earth. And uh, it's actually somewhat easier to make that knowledge available if we index it all by names. So in essence, we have a database with names. We present data pages that are relate to that. The million page mark means that we have a million actually taxa that are associated with some sort of content. Whether so that, that's just stuff. What, taxa, how is that different from a species? So a species is a, a population of individuals that is um, exchanging genetic information. That's sort of the simplest way to think about what a species is. There are higher and lower groups within that. There are subspecies, there are genera, there are families, kingdoms, and so forth. All of those have pages within the EOL. So the million page mark is really that we have hit a million groups or group, groups of species or subgroups of species that we have some sort of content for. Okay, so how does that compare? Do we have any idea how many species there are on Earth and, and how much progress we've made towards that a page per species? There are a lot of, or there are a few reasonable estimates about the number of species on Earth, and they range from uh, as small as 7 million to 50 million or more. So, and the number that have been described by humans is estimated to be about 2 million. So we, any way you cut it, there's a lot of work still left to go in terms of understanding the species and the diversity of life on the planet. And once we get that information available, that's the goal of EOL is to make it, put it out there, make it available to the world. So talk to talk to me a little bit about how you actually collect this information. Who is who is providing you with the information? How is the information vetted before it actually goes onto the web and out to the world? So let me first clarify a thing. You, you mentioned I was a master curator. Um, that is a role that I have at the EOL, but my main task is managing the uh, technical group. Um, at here at the Marine Biological Laboratory. So I mostly manage the software and hardware group, and. Um, the way that we bring things together is we have content partners from around the world. So there's over 220 content partners that are giving us uh, their information that they have collected that we then aggregate together. We also have a set of curators that go over that information, manage it in various ways, and make better presentation on the page. So who are those curators? Are they scientists who study certain types of species, or are they... Um other computer scientists or, or kind of who is doing that work? Mostly they're scientists. They need to be credentialed in some way relevant to taxonomy. Uh, so we have a process. Uh, there's actually a couple different levels of curators. So 
actually anyone on the site can uh, sort of dive in and become an assistant curator, which is somewhere where you help and get connected into the curator community. You don't have a lot of power on the site, but it's the great, it's the doorway in. And uh, people who then, uh, you know, show themselves in, in the site and uh, connect up with the full curators and the master curators in the site sort of go up the, the chain and become more and more powerful in the system. So is this kind of like the Wikipedia of life? We're so the way I like to think of the difference between Wikipedia and EOL is that Wikipedia is like a public library and we're more like a natural history museum. So we really focus on biodiversity and the organisms and things like that. We also take more of a scientific approach to the content. If you think of a public library, there can be any kinds of books there, fantasy, so forth. Those are all fine. Um, in a natural history museum, you would not expect an exhibit on unicorns, for example. Um, so uh, that's kind of the way I think about the difference. And so because we kind of are representing a higher scientific bar, we are very careful about indicating the source of our content and whether it's from a uh, scientific source or whether it's from a more general source. We actually partner closely with Wikipedia. So um, we bring in uh, content from Wikipedia. It's one of the things that's available there. It comes in by default in an unreviewed status. But one of the things our curators can do is go and review those pages for scientific accuracy. And uh, then they will get become trusted on our site. And we actually give that information back to Wikipedia where they mark the pages uh, having been reviewed. So I was actually on the site over the weekend and looking around. And this may seem a little obscure, but... I started wondering, you know, when you actually type in the, if you actually are looking at the URL, the idea occurred to me, well, maybe this is actually organized according to the classification scheme, as you were mentioning earlier, kingdom, phylum, class, order, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you could actually have your URLs just be that, that hierarchy. Um, it's not. The URLs are numbers and, and a few other things. Was there a conscious choice? Did that ever come up, that idea of trying to make your site navigation match um, evolutionary hierarchy? So one of the things that we hope to communicate at EOL is how little we as uh, all of humanity really knows about biodiversity. So the fact is that there are many different classification systems out there. Um, there are ongoing debate about where particular species land, how things should be split up, how deep the tree should be, and so forth. And what we try to do is represent all of that knowledge because we consider it all to be valuable. So there is not one big consensus tree that all scientists are working on in order to put that forward. Um, there are phy more phylogenetic trees. There are trees that are more based on um, historical um, similarity and so forth. Um, and there are different trees that have different levels of granularity. Uh, so, what do, you, what do you mean by that? So, for example, um, the uh, the folks that um, are involved in GenBank have a very deep tree. So, it may have uh, there may be forty levels between kingdom and species. Um, some other groups, there's you're lucky to have the seven um, that are in the traditional Linnaean hierarchy. And it really depends on how much focus that group has gotten, how much we understand about it, and how much naming has happened in that area. So there's a lot of sort of flexibility in what the tree looks like. It's not as simple as we may have learned in high school. So the one million pages that we currently have, obviously we're not going to go through all of them, but can you give us a sense of, of kind of what's in there? What kind of species do we have a lot of pages for? And, and what are we really missing a lot of, or do we, do we even know? 
It's a really interesting question. Um, we've been trying to get at that question in a lot of ways. Not surprisingly, we have a lot more content about species that are relevant to humans. So we have a richness score that we give for each page. And the richest pages are, you know, the lion page is our number one richest page. At least it was last time I checked. So that means it's got pictures and lots of information about what the right. species, its ecology... Exactly. So there's a lot of articles about it. There's a lot of pages about it. There's a lot of videos about it. There's a lot of information that comes from a lot of different sources. That's another important thing in our richness score. For some species, there may be, you know, one specialist um, in the world that has information about that. There's also a category of species that um, only has been seen once by whoever described it. Um, there's actually a significant, there's a question about estimating that. Um, so I think the current estimate is that between 20 and 30% of the species that have been described so far have been seen once. I'm talking with Nathan, Nathan Wilson, Master Curator of the Encyclopedia of Life. Uh, we'd love to have you join our conversation. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 866-999-4626. You can also email us at livinglabradio at wgbh.org, or you can find us on Twitter at livinglabradio. Now, your love of biodiversity in the natural world goes way back. You were telling me earlier you were in something like second grade when you decided you wanted to be a biologist. But you didn't go just straight through to being a biologist. So, so tell me a little bit about that story of how you got to, to what you're doing now. Sure. So um, as I said, when I was young, um, I was convinced I was going to be a biologist. And that's because I was sort of a junior naturalist. And I realized as I progressed um, that naturalist was really a better title for what I was looking at. And what I discovered when I went to college is that there are very, very few programs that have anything to do with being a naturalist. And the college that I was at had no uh, real uh, context for that. It was really about chemistry. Um, so from there, I switched to uh, studying uh, experimental psychology because it was about animal behavior. I was also interested in human consciousness and some interesting problems like that that you know college students get excited about. And uh, in the process of creating experiments and so forth in that, that world, I wrote a lot of computer programs to drive the experiments. So that got me interested in computers. I found I had a natural aptitude for it and ended up uh, working at SRI International on robotics and artificial intelligence for about a year. Um, actually, well, two years if you count the startup that we spun off of there. Um, I then went back to... Uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, and got a computer science degree and ended up focusing on multimedia and particular database backgrounds, database backends, um, and collaboration tools. Um, that led me sort of through a back door into Hollywood and working down there. And I ended up working at DreamWorks Animation for about 12 years, uh, working on uh, software development tools and uh, collaboration tools, database backends, and that sort of thing. All the while, I stayed passionately interested in being a naturalist and particularly studying fungi and mushrooms and um, ended up in 2006 creating the Mushroom Observer website. And then in 2007, the Encyclopedia of Life was announced and it was like they were made for each other because the Mushroom Observer provides content into the EOL uh, about mushrooms. And EOL has this much larger global footprint and can provide uh, links and hits back to Mushroom Observer. So it's a really synergistic uh, relationship. And I ended up getting to know the people in the EOL better. The opportunity here at the MBL came up. I applied for it. And here I am doing my dream job. 
Wow. Yeah, your your CV is is kind of a, a wild read. There are um, <laughs> you've got your contributions to published mycology papers. Um, you've got published photos of mushrooms, and then you've got film and TV credits. You've got software development. It's this. It's really a, a wild mix. The one that people often pick up is Barbie fashion designer. I was actually about to mention Barbie fashion designer along with Mech Warrior 2. I mean, these are <laughs> not, yep. not not necessarily what you expect to see uh, coming to that CV, knowing you as as a person really involved in biodiversity research and, and this computer side of things. I like to say that I've had several dream jobs in my life, but most of them weren't my dream job. And uh, now I do have my dream job. So... What is it about mushrooms? You know, you've been collecting mushrooms since you were something like 10 years old. What drew you to mushrooms? My parents have property in Northern California, and uh, we discovered one year that there were chanterelles growing there, uh, which are a wonderful gourmet mushroom. And my mother had actually collected mushrooms with her mother uh, back in Washington State and recognized the chanterelles. And I thought it was really exciting that you could go out in the wood and find wonderful things to eat. And I just went at wild about it. My mom encouraged me to buy books. I got involved in amateur groups uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, just learned more and more about it, read the books you know, passionately and just developed all of this knowledge. And then once it was there, uh, it had to grow. Now, when you got, got started doing mushrooms, could you still go like to your neighborhood pharmacist and they would know if if what you had was poisonous or not, I know that, that that used to be kind of part of pharmacy school was you needed to know that to be a, a community reference. I've never heard of that being true in the U.S. Maybe it was. Uh, that'd be really interesting. Um, I know it's true in parts of Europe. I believe it's still true in parts of France. Um, but that was never the approach that um, I took or that my mom and I took. It was much more about the amateur uh, mycology community. Um, or the the citizen mycology community, as it sometimes gets called. And uh, they really are, work strongly with the scientific community and are very, very knowledgeable. So you could go to these meetings. You could bring a bunch of mushrooms. There are also things called fungus fairs that people would go to, and you'd learn a lot more about the species there. So let's talk about mushroomobserver.org. This is this website that you created in your spare time, just labor of love, um, and it's it's kind of a, a mini EOL. It's an EOL for an encyclopedia of of mushrooms. Um, In a sense, but it, I mean, you call it kind of a collective or communal field notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I want to talk a little bit about the interaction of the different people that contribute and use mushroomobserver.org because it sure. really really is kind of a, a tool for collaboration. That's what you talked about being the the thing that you liked about your dro- job at at DreamWorks that you really like fostering that that collaboration. So how does that work on Mushroom Observer? So Mushroom Observer I created as a essentially an online field journal for the mushrooms that I collected. I'd gotten various photographs and things like that over time, and I wanted to make those available um, to the general world so that people could see good pictures that I thought were reasonably identified and so forth. And uh, this was about the time that Web 2.0 was gaining traction and the idea of creating interactive sites. And so I found a framework called Ruby on Rails that was actually very easy for me to create a database backend, create a front end where people could just contribute their own and create their own field journals in essence. And so what the site does at this point is gives you a very easy way to go in and create an observation. So you can 
create observation and upload some images, say a little bit about where it came from. You don't even have to know what it is. And if you do know what it is, that's great. But if you don't, that's fine. And then you upload it to the site and it shows up on the front page of the site and people, the community of people that come and look at Mushroom Observer on a regular basis will help you identify things you don't know or grade your images or so forth um, in various ways. Um, and it really has grown beyond my wildest dreams. We have over a quarter million images on the site at this point, over 100,000 observations that have been made by literally thousands of people. I had no idea there were that many mushroom enthusiasts out there. We hide well, but we don't talk too much. But it's amazing how many there are out there, especially in cultures outside the U.S. So has Mushroom Observer ever been a, a key part of making a discovery of a new species of mushroom? It has. Um, one of the interesting things I need to do better is keep track of that information. I know that uh, – so I went to the Mycological Society of America meeting this summer, which is a collective. Uh, meeting of all of the professional mycologists. And it was amazing how many times, and very gratifying, how many times Mushroom Observer was mentioned. It was mentioned in the president's keynote. It was mentioned in a variety of talks about, you know, oh, I got these images from Mushroom Observer, and oh, I used it in various ways, and that sort of thing. It's also been involved, I know, in identifying some new species, particularly in California, where it got started and where probably the, the richest group of people are that are contributing to it. So I wonder, is the goal then more discovery? Is it to try to foster these collaborations and find new species of mushrooms? Or is it really more about education? It's really both. Um, and I think they go hand in hand. So uh, people have given me feedback about how important it's been for their learning and for their education. It's a great way to disseminate things like name changes or new publications, those kinds of things. People will come up and say, oh, this has changed now in this publication. And then we go through and update all the observations on the site and make a note about that and so forth. And at the same time, um, it really is about making scientific contributions in a meaningful way. So it's really doing both. How much of that... Um carries over to Encyclopedia of Life. Is is there any uh, discovery role for Encyclopedia of Life, or is Encyclopedia of Life really more about the, the education and the dissemination of, of what we already know? I consider it to be both. Um, it's mostly been about the education and dissemination part. One of the key differences between a site like Mushroom Observer and the Encyclopedia of Life is that Mushroom Observer is about individual observations, whereas the Encyclopedia of Life is about these named entities that we've created, um, that we, you know, these pigeonholes that we're putting the organisms of the world into. And so there's kind of a different emphasis, and so the things that people can come and do on the site differ. Um, so on uh, Encyclopedia of Life, it's about reviewing the content that's there, checking it for accuracy, um, adding new descriptions of organisms, keeping track of new publications of organisms, those kind of things. That's very much its focus, not a focus of what did I find in my backyard and so forth, although that's a question that always comes up. And so the line blurs, and that's functionality we want to provide in EOL. Um, it's not there at the moment. Um, but there are various ways of searching geographically and so forth. But um, so it's kind of a there's a play between the two sites. They contribute to different aspects of ways that people can get engaged in biodiversity. Now, in certain fields of science like astronomy, volunteers or amateurs have been part of the the process of scientific discovery for a long time. I mean, I think amateurs actually at this point discover more new, um, you know, stars or, or parts of the 
the heavens than than the actual scientists do a lot of the time. Um, but that hasn't necessarily been the case in other fields of science. And there's there's kind of this revolution going on right now called citizen science, trying to get people more um, involved in this process, especially when we have these really enormous global questions like how many species are there on Earth and what are they all? That's not something that any individual scientist or even probably every scientist on Earth working on um, could really solve. It's, it's going to take more than that. And you've, I've seen you quoted as saying that if you treat volunteers as your most important asset, they will return the favor by becoming your most important asset. Do you see this, this opening of, of science to volunteers and to amateurs? Is it, is it taking off? Is it really taking hold at this point? It absolutely is. Um, it's really amazing. It almost brings tears to my eyes to see how people getting excited and making these contributions and making you know meaningful discoveries. Um, what I really consider the scientific aspect of it to be, or the the contribution of the scientists to be focused on you know making sure it's good science, um, understanding the pathways to publication and so forth. But the amateur. Um, enthusiasm, the number of eyes they have, the amount of stuff that they can see is so much broader than what the scientists can bring. Um, that is really an amazing collaboration. And it's really exciting to see it going on. So what what is that interplay in a lot of cases? I mean, how do you envision uh, the the volunteers or the amateurs, and we're not saying that in any derogatory way, um, and, and the professional or credentialed scientists? Are they are they equals? Is there a hierarchy there? How, how do those two work together? It really depends on the project and how it's going. Um, different kinds. So there can be top-down or bottom-up, as they sometimes get called, citizen science projects. Mushroom Observer is a bottom-up type thing. It came from people who were just excited about mushrooms, and the scientists have found value in it. There are other ones that get initiated by a scientist and bring in um, uh, amateur collaborators and so forth. Um, I really don't consider it to be a question of of equality or hierarchy. They bring different things to the table, and they're both, you know, passionate about what's going on. Um, mycology has also had a long history of amateur participation. Uh, there's, you know, goes all the way back to the very beginning days of people, and at this point. Many scientists have said there are many amateurs out there who know far more about particular groups than any professional does. And that's just the reality that we live in. And, uh, you know, scientists are driven by funding and all those kinds of things, and they can't necessarily study a particular group as a passionate hobby in the same way that someone who's not doing it for money can. Um, and what to call them? I I've actually kind of given up on the amateur, citizen, professional, so forth. I just call them all mycologists because they really all are. How do they – I know there's this kind of open question still in the, the scientific community with regard to citizen scientists or amateurs, whatever you, whatever title you do want to choose there. Um, when they do help make a discovery or when they essentially make a discovery that is then vetted and, and confirmed by a credentialed scientist – are they uh, rewarded in any way? Is there, you know, are, how are they credited within the the publication within the scientific community? Is there any um, monetary involvement here? I mean, or is this purely just um, their voluntary contribution to the betterment of of humanity? It's almost always voluntary. Um... And partially it depends on the scientists as to how much credit they get and so forth. I don't think you can give them too much credit. Like, I, I, I think you 
want to say that right. I think it's not possible to give them as much credit as they deserve um, in the process. And so, um, you know, acknowledging them papers, acknowledging them, uh, their contributions and so forth is really the big win um, from the perspective of the people who are putting their time and effort um, into it. Um, you know, the scientists also obviously, you know, need the credit. They need it for their careers. They need it and so forth um, for all those reasons. Um, and so that's important. But really expressing it as a collaboration, including everyone and being inclusive is really the way to encourage this and to make this more and more accurate and more and more powerful. Now, obviously, you work in the realm of computers and the Internet. And I've also heard you say that you think that the Internet is an incredibly powerful tool for enabling citizen science and, and bringing these collaborations together. But not everyone in the world has access to the Internet. So how global, how scalable is this Internet-based uh, collaboration in citizen science? Boy, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, I, I see it really as the enabler of this process. Um, and so the more it gets spread out and the more available it is, the more that we'll be able to um, make this process happen um, more richly. Um, the communities that are not connected to the internet, they're generally aware of the internet and uh, are trying to find ways of getting onto it in various ways. And the more that that expands, the, the fact that we can share the knowledge so rapidly across the earth um, is really the moving thing behind this. Because if we look at historical uh, mycology, for example, much of the observations of North American mycoflora is really based on particular communities, particular universities. And if you look at the distribution of our where we found species, it's very focused on those areas. Uh, we know much more about the mycology of you know, the eastern U.S. than we do about the Midwest, for example, because there simply has not been as much study there. And so enabling the movement of that data from all of these sources to, um, to the places where scientists are focusing on it is really, really a powerful way to move the information. And there are many countries where we know very, very little about the mycology there. There's so much to be discovered that it's really exciting. Wow. Yeah, it is exciting. I, you know, there's, there's, as you said, one of the, the big lessons that you learn from looking at these sites is just how little we know. I mean, that's, and, and that seems to be for you one of the things that's so exciting, that there's so much exploration left to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, and, and you know, I, and, and it can also go to um, range extensions and things like that. There have been, uh, you know, there are undescribed species that are growing in uh, the lawns of Southern California. Um, there are, uh, and then as far as range extensions, there are species that I've found in Southern California that had never been even looked for there. And so those are the kinds of things where we're learning more and more about how diverse this planet is, how many different species there are, um, and how rich the world is. It's just well, amazing. I'm going to have to have you come to my front yard next spring and uh, see if any of the mushrooms there are yet undiscovered species. Probably some of them are. <laughs> Nathan Wilson is Master Curator of the Encyclopedia of Life, EOL.org, and also founder of MushroomObserver.org. Thank you so much for an enjoyable conversation. It was great, Heather. Thank you. You can find links to EOL and to Mushroom Observer on our website. Go to capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. This is Living Lab on the Point. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Goldstone. Living Lab on the Point is produced by Heather Goldstone. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Dan Tridel and Jenny Junker. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter. 
Living Lab on the Point is a production of the Cape and Islands NPR stations, a service of WGBH. Thank you.